Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I'm going to teach you to think more like a Formula One team does when it comes to creating a data set for your life that you can go back into after mistakes and failures. You can analyze and help find your way back onto the path towards success. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. But you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hey everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. I'm so grateful to every single one of you, wherever it is you are in the world, however it is you're listening, whatever it is you're up to whilst you're listening, for choosing to spend some of your valuable time here with me. I'm so truly grateful. I need to say a massive thank you to Car Gods, as we have done all the way through season five. They've been a big part of what I'm able to achieve here, and together as a community, a big part of what we're growing with the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Car Gods detailing products could not be a better fit for so many of the messages that come through this podcast. They have supported me And in turn, they're supporting all of us, all of you, everybody listening. They are part of this community now and they're helping this podcast to grow. And ultimately, that has to be the goal of this. I'm trying to spread messages that will help people to achieve more in their daily lives, as I've been able to do using the things that I learned through my time, my privileged time in Formula One. And the more people that I can help, the more people that can hear these messages, that can apply some of these Formula One ways of thinking, these Formula One mindset techniques to your lives, it can 100% help you to achieve success, whatever that looks like for you. And Car Gods have been a huge part of helping me to grow that. So I hope you can spare a moment at some point when you finish listening to this, get over to cargods.com and just have a look around. Because if you are a car owner, or if you know somebody, you have somebody in your life who is a car owner, car gods have everything, and I mean everything, that you will need to look after that car, make it shine, make it look good, and also this preventative maintenance idea of looking after it so you don't get the big expensive repair bills. There are products there that can help you do that too. So go check them out, cargods.com, and we'll come back to them a little bit later. Now, let's start uh, with today's topic, because this weekend as many of you I'm sure will know, was the Brazilian Grand Prix. Well, it was actually called the Sao Paulo Grand Prix, but it was a Grand Prix in Sao Paulo in Brazil at the Interlagos circuit. And that's a place and a race that has some very special memories for me. And I'm sure that many of you, when you're imagining what I'm about to say next, many of you will jump straight to 2008, because that was the scene in 2008 at Interlagos where Lewis Hamilton won his first world championship. And it was a momentous occasion and an occasion that I'm hugely proud to say that I played a key role in. I helped him to achieve that world championship. And that's something that me and my colleagues have an an enormous sense of pride around. And whatever Lewis has gone on to achieve since 
we take some pride in that as well because we were there at the beginning of that journey. And Interlagos, the Brazilian Grand Prix of 2008, I'm sure you all know how it finished in that dramatic closing lap. That was just an incredible occasion to be part of. It will always be in my memories as a massive high in my career. Achieving a world championship is indescribably hard. It's enormous. It's literally the biggest prize in the sport. And we achieved that as a team as much as Lewis did uh, on that particular day. So that was a massive positive uh, thought, positive um, memory uh, from that particular racetrack and that particular year. But just 12 months earlier, almost exactly 12 months earlier, at exactly the same racetrack, the closing race of the 2007 season, McLaren went into that race with both of our drivers, Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso, almost a shoe-in to win the world title. And yet, at the end of that Sunday in Brazil, we came away empty-handed. We missed out on the championship by one point with both drivers. And it was heartbreaking. It was the opposite set of emotions, pretty much, to the ones we experienced 12 months later. Now, The reason that I'm bringing both of those occasions up as big memories from that race is because there is no coincidence that 12 months after suffering that crushing defeat, we went on to achieve the greatest success in the sport. That didn't happen by accident. Those two events, those two weekends, those two days in Brazil are inextricably linked together. And I want to go on and explain exactly what I mean by that, because there are some good life lessons buried deep in suffering that catastrophic defeat and how we turn that around into becoming a massive success just a year later. There is so much that I have taken away from that on a personal level, and I want to share that with you. So let's go back. 2007, we get to that closing race We've had a difficult year, as many people will know, difficult inside the team, uh, difficult for the drivers, for the team management, for, in fact, every single person in that McLaren organisation suffered in one way or another that year. It was an awful year of turmoil. And if you want to know more about that, by the way, go and get my book. The whole story is in there uh, from a behind-the-scenes perspective to give context to the story that you know from watching it on the television, from being a fan and just getting the TV coverage. If you want the real story, what was really going on behind the scenes, get out and buy my book, The Mechanic. And that's the end of my shameless plug. Um, I'll leave that with you. Great Christmas stocking filler, by the way. Um, (laughs) uh, And been translated into multiple languages. Now, that really is the end of the shameless plug. Um, But uh, what I want to talk about is 2007, at the end of what was a very difficult year, we went into that final day still with huge hope and anticipation. We were on the brink of winning a championship and I didn't care whether it went to Lewis or went to Fernando. Either of our drivers were in the same position. Either of them could have won that race and could have won that world championship. And if either of them had won it, I would have been equally happy. I didn't care who won it. I just wanted a McLaren driver to come away as the world champion. And yet what happened in that particular race was fairly disastrous. Over that race weekend, fairly disastrous. And as you know, the story unfolds that Kimi Raikkonen in the Ferrari slipped through in the closing moments of that Grand Prix and snatched that championship away from us by one solitary point. At the end of that Sunday in Brazil, I was heartbroken. We were heartbroken. That is devastating to get that close to 
and then come away from a long, difficult, tumultuous season with absolutely nothing. Nothing. Nothing to show for it. No measure of success. No trophy. No accolade. Nobody talking about what a great job we'd done. I know that I did a pretty decent job that year, in the most part. Many of my colleagues were exactly the same. And yet, for a number of reasons, we didn't win. It's easy to look at that Brazilian Grand Prix of 2007 and say, well, there are a number of reasons why that didn't happen. Drivers made mistakes. We had a technical failure on Lewis's car. There are so many reasons you can pinpoint. Just like in 2021, when you look at how the championship ended with Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. There's so much focus on the closing laps of that race because that was the big story. There was this moment where the crash happened and the race director had to make a bunch of decisions. He went slightly off-piste and made decisions that weren't following by the letter of the law, the rule book. And as we all know, this incredible controversy erupted. And the argument on many people's lips would be, and understandably to uh, on, on most parts, the argument would be, well, Lewis Hamilton was robbed in those closing moments because the rules weren't followed and because they weren't applied correctly, and this has now been proven after the investigation, because the rules weren't applied correctly and mistakes were made, those mistakes favoured Max Verstappen. And in those closing laps, the entire world championship swung from being Lewis Hamilton's to being Max Verstappen's. I think that's a fairly popular opinion. It clearly isn't the opinion of everybody, and I'm really not going to get into the rights and wrongs and the details of it. But that's not the point of this. Because the point of this is that if you look at 2021 as an example, and it's exactly the same in 2007, that championship wasn't decided on the final day. It wasn't decided in either case in the closing laps of that Grand Prix. Because the championship is a long, hard-fought battle. It's over multiple races, over multiple continents, many months, thousands of people taking part in all manner of different disciplines from each of those factories. There is so much that goes into a world championship, and yet we quite often focus on that last bit, the closing moments, the final race. You don't win or lose a championship in reality, in the, in the final corners or the final laps of a Grand Prix. Certainly not the closing laps of a Grand Prix season. Because that moment back in race three that everyone's forgotten about, where you made a mistake or something went wrong, you had a bad strategy call, or you got a puncture or you, your driver crashed. That's just as important as the moments that happen in the closing stages of a, the final race of the season. In 2007... You could look at the Lewis Hamilton side of that story and say, well, he had a, a technical failure on his car that seemed very strange and the car then came back to life in the latter stages of the race. That's why he wasn't able to win. But I know that we could also look just a couple of races earlier at the Chinese Grand Prix and we could look at that horrific mistake that was made by his side of the garage in not pitting a little bit earlier for those tyres that resulted in him landing up in a gravel trap. There were many other occasions all the way down that season. You could look at that fateful, hungry pit stop and the penalties that we got as a result of those things. There's so many factors that go into that. So many mistakes were made. So many decisions were made many months before those final race uh, races happened in both cases, 2021 and 2007. And in fact, every championship. 
Decisions that were made many months, even over a year ago, all played into the final outcome of any success or failure in a world title. And so, if that's the case, when we go back to 2007 and I, along with my teammates, are feeling distraught, devastated at such a loss when we effectively snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. We were so close. We had two people, two drivers in the fight, both of them with a great chance of winning the big prize, and yet none of them took it. We came away empty-handed. As a team, what we have to do at the end of that is we obviously commiserate, we go through the rest of that weekend, we pack everything up, we get back to the factory, and it's hard, it's tough. People suffer, people wallow in self-pity and misery for some periods of time. You, you take that defeat to heart. Because you put so much into it, you take the big crushing blows hard. And after all of that has settled and we're back at the factory and we start going through the post-season debrief. And one of my tasks at the end of 2007 was to start to figure out some of the areas where we went wrong in 2007 that we could then apply to 2008 to make us better. Now, that was from a, a technical perspective on the cars. It was from a driving perspective, from an engineering perspective, from an operational perspective. There are things to learn in every single area of what we do. Huge numbers of people, as I said, play into the eventual outcome of any Grand Prix season. And so all the way along with those enormous numbers of people, some days people did really well. They performed well in their roles. Others, they may have been subpar. They may have made decisions that with hindsight, weren't the best. They might have made mistakes that were clear and obvious, but back then they thought they were doing the right thing. But it might have been so long ago, it's easy to disassociate those mistakes or those decisions with the eventual outcome that might be many months later. And that, let's say, is the first thing that we can take away from this in terms of our lives. Because in most cases, when we have to make tough decisions, big calls, we have to take risks. We have to decide on which path we're going to take in any given decision-making moment, many times a day, often. When we make those decisions, quite often the results of that, the outcomes that come from those decisions, in many cases are not seen for quite some time further down the line, sometimes months, sometimes years. And by the time we get to that outcome, we've long since forgotten, in many cases, that decision or that moment where we had to choose a path all that time ago. It seems so insignificant by the time we eventually get to the outcome. If it's a great outcome, of course, we don't really care what happened six months ago because all we care about is the success we've just achieved. But in 2007, something happened where we didn't get our success. We had a disastrous outcome that particular year. And me, along with some colleagues, were tasked with trying to find out why, how it happened, how we can prevent it happening again. What were the main drivers of our failures? What prevented us from winning the title when we had everything? We had two great drivers, we had a great car. What were the main factors that caused us to have crushing defeat rather than amazing success. And I had to start going back through some of the data. I had to start looking at each event and what went well and what didn't. 
Now in Formula One, we have an incredible data set to be able to look at in those scenarios. We have masses of technical data from the cars. So we know that if a, a car breaks down on a certain lap of a Grand Prix, of course, we have a huge pool of data that we can then analyze and it will give us clues as to why the car failed. And quite clearly, quite often, that's a, an easy one for us. The sensor, there's a sensor on the car that has flagged a problem moments before the engine went bang or the gearbox packed up. And there it is. There's your answer. You know what went wrong. So then you can get hold of that sensor. You can find out why it went wrong. We can replace it. We've got a very clear answer. But from a technical perspective, that might be the case. We have some data around operational decisions that we made, strategic calls that we made on that particular day. Did we get the race strategy right? Did we get our pit stop calls correct? Now, there's data around that. So again, we can go into that and we can say, well, let's look at the uh, the, the race strategy and we'll, let's look at the simulation model at the time we made that call. Did we get it right? You know, was there a better call that we could have made? And if we didn't get it right, maybe why did we get it wrong? Why did we make that choice? Because when we made the choice all that time ago, we obviously thought we were doing the right thing. So why was that? What factor or which factors played into our decision making at that time when we were convinced we were doing the right thing and yet it turned out to be the wrong thing? Of course, sometimes there are uncontrollables, there are unpredictable things that just happen. And even though you made a decision with the best intentions, with the best information you had at the time, even then, things can still work out unfavorably towards you because of factors beyond your control. But when we're going back through the season, we're looking at each event and we're trying to figure out what we could have done better, why things went wrong. One of the things that dawned on me was we were pouring through technical data from the cars, from the equipment, strategy data, as I say. It was all around how the car was performing, how the car performed at a certain track compared to our rivals. You know, all of this data was very technical in one sense or another. What dawned on me, of course, and it is obvious when you really stop and think about it, but I don't think we thought about it in this way before, was that any of that technical side of the sport, the car, the tools, the equipment, the pit stop processes, everything that we do, every part of this hugely technical sport has behind all of that technology a bunch of human beings, a bunch of people, thousands of people up and down the pit lane making that technology, designing that technology, manufacturing it, developing it, bringing it to life. Those people are the lifeblood of our sport. And as I started looking at technical data around decisions that may have been made at a certain time, a strategy call, for example, I started to think about, was there something going on with the people that made those decisions that made them or forced them into that particular area, that made them down go down that track and ultimately make that decision? Because we all know that we make different choices, we have different behaviours, we make different decisions. Quite often, we all do this in our lives, depending on what's going on in our own minds, what's, what feelings we have, how content we are, how happy we are, how healthy we're feeling, how tired we are, or otherwise. These human biological factors all actually play a massive part in how we 
deliver the goods that we've got to deliver, how we perform in our sort of professional sense, as well as our personal lives, of course, too. And as I was looking at all this, I was wondering, I wonder if there was a way that we could get a clearer picture of, of how people were feeling at that time. It might have been six months earlier, but I wonder if there was a way where we had a data set for people's emotional states, people's feelings. How were people feeling at the time they made the decision? And could there be some clues if we did have that data as to why they made a certain decision, which may now be one of those factors that we know contributed to the eventual disappointing outcome at the end of the season. And then what I found was, whilst of course we don't have that for everybody in the team, there's no mechanism, there's no metric to measure that kind of data, emotional data from most people, but we do have it for some people. Because one of the things that we record at the end of every single day is the debrief. So every time a driver comes in from a racetrack, we get a debrief between the driver and the engineers, between the mechanics and the driver, between the drivers, between the mechanics and the engineers. There are conversations which are all recorded, either recorded in the literal sense or recorded in terms of minutes of a meeting, in terms of a debrief sheet where a driver will scribble down his thoughts around a particular corner on this particular lap. There are so many actual metrics where over a race weekend, we do get some human data, some personal data of humans interacting with each other, conversations that were recorded on the radio within the team, within the garage, but also with the driver. And from conversations, human interactions, the most biological and natural form of communication, having a conversation, if we've got that data, if we have that understanding of maybe how people were feeling, what the emotional, uh, emotional state was like, what the mood in the camp was like that particular day, it might also, once when it's overlaid with that other technical data and operational data that we had, it might actually give us another layer that we could analyse and start to work into our calculations or our understanding of why we made certain decisions. And ultimately, why those decisions ended up going the wrong way for us in 2007 instead of the right way. And I started to pick some of this apart along with my colleagues. And it was really quite interesting what we found because there were some very clear indicators of people being short-tempered, being grumpy, you know, being a little bit less compassionate than they might otherwise be on a different day. There are moments when you can clearly see a driver's bitterly frustrated with his car or sometimes with the team. And the things he will say in those moments are perhaps not what he might say on another day when he was calm and he was being considered. And of course, the feedback that we get completely changes dependent on that emotional state. But that feedback is what the engineers and the mechanics work from. So whether or not the driver scribbles down something on his debrief sheet that's pretty angry, it's pretty short, short and sweet, short-tempered, well, the engineers and the mechanics, that's the feedback they get. When they talk to the driver, if it's one-word answers, if it's grumpy and angry, that's still the feedback they get. They're not necessarily interpreting the mood, they have to just interpret the feedback. And so the decisions are made based on that feedback, but the feedback might have been given in a way that was heavily influenced by the mood or by the emotional state. 
Anyway, what I'm trying to say with all this is that we uncovered a considerable amount of information, much of which was quite hard to decipher and make too much sense of. But every now and again, we found something that really did make sense, that really did add to the picture that we were trying to build of what would have been happening through 2007 and linking that picture to the outcomes on those particular days, on those race weekends, good or bad, and trying to build an understanding of where we went wrong with our people and where we went right with our people. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? If we got something wrong, can we figure out why that happened? Can we figure out a way to make sure that is less likely to happen in the future? And the reason I said it was not coincidence that 12 months later, we won that big prize in 2008 was because we spent a huge amount of time trying to make sure that we didn't repeat the failures, some very clear and obvious failures of 2007. And a part of how we were able to do that so succinctly, so effectively, was because of this additional layer of understanding that we had of why those decisions and failures had been made in the first place. It was an eye-opening experience and one that ultimately delivered us the success we'd been craving for so long, just 12 months later. We didn't make the same mistakes. We looked after our people in a different way. We gave people space when they were feeling a little bit over-emotional or tired. We tried to combat things like jet lag because it was a very clear indication that poor decisions were much more frequently made in the days when jet lag was being suffered the most, in the days following a long haul flight, before any real adjustment had been made. And so we put a lot of effort from a team point of view into trying to combat or overcome jet lag. Jet lag has this incredible ability to deplete your cognitive ability, your cognitive responses to questions and of course we're getting questions as engineers all day long why are we doing something a certain way how can we make the car perform better at this particular corner without those changes negatively affecting another corner around the racetrack we're constantly getting questions we're bombarded as mechanics and engineers with how to continually improve so many things at once it's not easy and if you're suffering with something like jet lag, which has this effect of, of coming out in incredible tiredness at certain parts of the day particularly, we, if we know that's happening, if we know that's going to happen, we can start to structure our critical meetings at different times of the day when we're not going to be suffering in quite the same way. We might know that jet lag is going to really kick in at about two o'clock in the afternoon, something like that because of the time difference from home. So we can structure our really important critical meetings at a time when we're not consumed by the worst effects of jet lag. We can start to combat jet lag by gradually transitioning into the foreign time zone even before we've left the UK. And that can minimize the effects of that. So lots of little details like that went into 2008. And the effects that we got out of that, the changes, the results that we got out of that were quite dramatic. And this applied not just to the traveling race team, but we started over time to gradually apply it to everybody. We applied it to everybody in the entire team. We gave people space to come up with ideas. The drawing office was another really good, a good example of this. The drawing office where the car's designed many months, if not years, before we eventually see it on the racetrack. 
there's a team of many people, creative thinkers, who are sat at a bunch of computer terminals and their task is to dream up and design to create and have ideas for all these components that go into making up a Formula One car. Now, when I got into that drawing office and started to speak to people and understand how they operated on a daily basis, given that most of our company was highly technical, it was almost military precision in terms of its operation, that Ron Dennis era was very much like that. And whilst, of course, the design office were designing something very technical, they were also very creative. They had to be creative because their role was literally all about coming up with ideas. But what we found was very few of those ideas, very few of those creative ideas ever actually happened whilst the designer was sat at their computer terminal with a mouse under their palm of their hand staring at a screen. That's when the company had expected them to have their ideas. They're coming in to work between nine and five or nine and six or whatever it is. And we expect to be paying them to have ideas between those hours. That's their job. They've got to come up with ideas. And we're going to give you the tools with this computer, the software. Go ahead. Have the ideas. Dream up our car. But having spoken to those designers, very few of those ideas, those creative ideas ever happened whilst those designers were sat at a computer terminal. They had their ideas when they were out walking the dogs in the morning before work, when they were in the shower, as they were drifting off to sleep at night. They were having ideas whilst they were having their dinner, whilst they were having their lunch, when they stopped work and walked away from their computer terminal and did something completely different, when they freed their mind, took away distraction, when they literally got bored, when they had nothing else to do, That's when they were at their most creative. And that, by the way, is another lesson that we can all benefit from. If you've got, I've had this, writing a book. There's the plug for the book again. The Mechanic, you can buy it anywhere. (laughs) When I was writing that book, um, the creative, the writer's block that, that I suffered on so many occasions was hard because you sit down at a computer, little flashing cursor in front of you. And my job in that moment is to start tapping out thousands of words. But sometimes it's really hard to do that. And sometimes I had to walk away from my computer. I had to take the dogs out. I had to go and brush my teeth. I had to do anything that wasn't sitting at a computer. And then, bizarrely, the ideas began to flow. Driving the car is where most people have so many of their ideas because they can't really do anything else. They can't be sitting staring at a phone. They can't be scrolling the internet, just being distracted. You've got to take away those distractions free up your mind and then the ideas will start to flow into that space and that was one of the elements that we were able to apply to the drawing office something that every other part of the organization wouldn't have benefited from because of the very different way of working in other departments but in a creative department like the design office that's exactly what we had to do we had to encourage our designers to get out of the office to go away and do something free their minds up remove themselves from distraction and just get a break from the screen and go and think, go and daydream. How often do we tell kids off for daydreaming, looking out the window? They're having ideas in those moments. They're thinking, they're dreaming, they're creating. But if we let our kids constantly scroll on a phone and search social media and search the internet and be constantly looking and 
being distracted by notifications and beeps and messages, when are they ever going to have time to be bored and think of ideas? It's actually a problem. This is another subject. I won't go too far into it today, but another subject, another problem we've got in society, let alone Formula One, is that there's almost no time for our younger generation today to be bored. Because if they have a spare moment or two in their day, what do we do? And we all do it. It's not just the younger generation. We grab our phones. We reach for the phones. If we sat on a train, everyone's got their phone out. And actually, one of the most productive things you can do if you are a creative that needs ideas is to do nothing. Is don't get your phone out. Sit on that train. Stare out the window. Daydream. It's those moments when some of the best ideas come to us. And anyway, that was a little sidebar, but one of the small things we were able to apply at McLaren, having understood some of the frustrations that our design department had, and bearing in mind that so many months, 12 months, 15 months before that moment in Brazil in 2007, where we failed to win the championship, decisions were being made in that drawing office about components on the car every single component on the car and yet so many of our designers were frustrated because they just couldn't get the right creative process flowing because of the way the company had them structured had their days structured that was a small thing we were able to apply change to and understand off the back of looking at 2007 there might be a better way But there were lots of these kind of things and applying them to 2008, as I said earlier, delivered the greatest success of them all. And a big part of it was, yes, analysing data, but it was really also understanding how people were feeling when they made decisions. So how can all of this apply to us? The reason that was a poignant moment for me it was a a seminal moment almost because when I was part of that process of trying to figure this out and understand why things had happened and that by the way is always one of the best questions you can ever ask why why did something happen not just why did it happen today but why did a decision go a certain direction months earlier that led to today There are so many questions you can continually, repeatedly ask why to. And again, we often get frustrated with our children when they keep coming back to every answer we give them with the word why. In the end, we often tell them to just go away and say it's just because it is. That's just how it is. We should be encouraging our children to say why. Why did it happen? Why do you do it like that? Why does this look like that? Why is it called that? The why question is one of the best questions for developing understanding. And as kids, we ask it all the time. As adults, we start to gradually grow out of doing that. We don't feel we have the time to go into asking why. We don't feel like others have the time to explain to us why. And so we don't bother asking. We often feel like we might be able to find the answer if we want to by just looking it up on our phones but we don't get the full answer. We don't get the answer that's twinned with the experience of the person who can give us that answer. And sometimes those personal touches, the experience that goes along with the finite definitive answer are what give it context, what give it a little bit more, another layer of understanding. So asking why is something that should be utterly encouraged. 
And that was a big part of my role at the end of 2007 and into 2008, was to keep asking why. Why did we do this? Why was somebody feeling a little bit under the weather that day when they made that decision? And all of these little intricate details. Bearing in mind that Ron Dennis, his attention to detail is second to none, and he expects that from everybody. So whilst you might be listening to this and think, and think, well, that's crazy, go down to that level of detail, that's what was expected of us. And I liked it because I loved digging that deeply to try and find the answers that we needed to make sure we could go that final step in 2008. And so let's bring it back to you and I. The reason that I'm saying this and the reason this is a lesson that I can share here that I know you, we can benefit from. I know that because I'm already benefiting from this. I do this, what I'm about to tell you. If you think about what I've just described, about that process in 2007, the things I uncovered by going back over the 2007 season and trying to uncover this emotional layer of data, this personal layer of data, how people were feeling, what the mood was. We were lucky to some extent that certain parts of our operation had those things recorded in things like debriefs, in interviews, in radio communications. We have a, an email chain of decisions and conversations that had happened on that particular day. There is a lot of communication that is recorded, that's kept that I was able to go back and start piecing together like the pieces of a jigsaw to try and get a better understanding of why we did or said something a certain way. But we can do this ourselves. And one of the things that that taught me most of all, and something that I do every single day today, is write down how I was feeling yesterday. Now I do this every single morning. I get up, typically my day starts at around six o'clock. I get up, there's nobody else up in my house at that point. So I'll get up, I'll do a little bit of exercise and I will write my journal. And in my journal, I write a number of different things. It's not the same, it's not structured, but I will always try to write something about how I was feeling. Yes, excuse me. But I will, but I will always try to write something about how I was feeling yesterday. Because I can go into my calendar and I can know what I did on a particular day. If I was giving a speech to somebody, if I was working at an organisation, if I was uh, at a Grand Prix doing commentary, whatever roles in the various capacities that I, I do, I know that. That's fairly well documented. I can always go back and find out what I was doing on a certain day because my calendar is packed with that detail. But what my calendar will never tell me is how I was feeling on that particular day. And that's where my journal comes in. And what I found over the last couple of years of doing this is that actually I can go back into my journal and overlay it with my calendar and I can go back into a moment when a decision was made or I had to perform in a certain way with my one of my roles. And if I got a good outcome, I can overlay the journal entries and try to understand how I was feeling, what went into making those decisions that day in exactly the same way that I applied the same process at McLaren at the end of 2007. My journal is a data set of my emotional state and my feelings on every single day of the year. It's not just that. If I'm feeling particularly grateful for something, I'll write it down. Gratitude, by the way, another really great thing to log in a journal. 
an understanding of how grateful you are and why you're grateful for certain things is a really important thing to never lose sight of. And writing it down can be a really important way of doing that. I tend to do it the old school way. I use a pen and a diary. You can do it with an app on your phone, but I always find that by writing these things down, for me at least, it has an even greater impact. It sticks with, it sticks with me. It sticks my mind for longer. It's a bit more visual and visceral for me, and so therefore has a bigger impact on me. But writing those feelings down, and I have done this recently, I've gone back and checked when a decision that I made has either played out positively or negatively sometime further down the line. As I said earlier, they always do that or quite often do that. I was able to go back, check the data, the data of my feelings, my emotional data, the things I wrote down on the day that the decision was made, on the day that I had to go in and perform in a certain way. I had to deliver something to somebody. I had to research something. Whatever it was, I can go back into my emotional data set overlay it with the task that I was doing, pair that with the eventual outcome that came from that day and get a much clearer picture of why it either works or it didn't work. And when you do this over time consistently and you do it, go back and check and look on a regular basis, it's quite remarkable how profound your feelings are linked to the eventual outcome that might be months further down the line. And what's really clever and important and valuable about doing this process is that by doing this process, I'm able to learn so much more from every one of my failures, every one of the things that goes wrong in my life. And of course, that happens all of the time. It happens many times a day sometimes, as it does for every single one of you, I have no doubt. But I have found on many occasions, there is enormous value in going back to find out why it didn't work. And the value is in understanding that and applying it to the next decision I make. The benefit of that experience, of that understanding, means that I'm far less likely to make a similar mistake. I'm far more likely to get a positive outcome having fully understood why I got a negative outcome last time. And there are often multiple layers of understanding of why you got your negative outcome. There might be a really obvious error that was made. There might just be a mistake. And it's easy to look at it and go, well, I just chose the wrong option. I just got it wrong. It was just a mistake. And that may well be the case. But if we refer back and say, well, why? Ask that question again. Why did I just make the mistake on that particular day? Perhaps if you go back through this emotional data set, perhaps you had an argument with your your wife, wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Perhaps you'd had a bit of a blow at work. You'd been dealt a blow. Perhaps you'd had a a sort of trauma in the family. Perhaps you had some money worries on those particular days. You were distracted. Perhaps you were tired. Perhaps you hadn't been sleeping well enough building up to that. If your data set, your emotional data set, your feelings that you've written down consistently over the days building up to when you made the decision, you kept referring to being tired or not getting enough sleep. When I track my sleep now using a sleep tracker and it's all adding into this data set that I can overlay. I find it fascinating. I'm a proper geek when it comes to data, but I find it hugely valuable to do that. And if you were tired, for example, and if you'd been feeling tired in the week building up to that because you'd been going to bed too late or getting up too early because you've been staying up watching 
terrible television till late at night or sitting scrolling on your phone addicted to TikTok, social media. And as a result of that, you didn't get to bed when you should have got to bed and you were tired. Perhaps that's an explanation as to why you made that silly little mistake. Just a silly little mistake. But if you know that and you know that being tired or prolonged tiredness for you can result in silly little mistakes. You can easily find a way to cut out many of those silly mistakes because you know one of your triggers. And it will be different for everybody and that's why this is such a personal thing. There is no one size fits all answer. And that's exactly why you have to write down your feelings in a way you felt them. Write them in a way that you think will help you. I'd love you to go and try it because it's a hugely valuable process and I cannot recommend it highly enough. If, like me, you love a bit of data, see it like that. See it as data. Just see it as another layer to the data set that you can overlay with other things like your calendar, like your sleep tracker, your fitness tracker. Whatever it is you want to do, however you want to apply it, see it that way. If you're more creative and you're not really a data geek like I am, uh, see it as just journaling. See it as creative writing. See it as a, a sort of as a, an outpouring of your emotions, of your feelings every single day. A little outlet. If you don't want to tell those feelings to other people, write them down. It's a way of getting them out. But every now and again, it's really worth going back in and having a closer look at how they may have impacted some of the decisions and then ultimately the outcomes that you made further down the line. I have absolutely no doubt that that process helped us to win the world championship in 2008, having lost it 12 months earlier in 2007. So many factors that we got wrong as an organization went into 2007. It was a disastrous year on so many levels. But I am very proud to say, and this is one of the reasons I'm so proud to have played a part in that championship, was because we won that championship by learning from some of our biggest mistakes. And I don't just mean not making the same mistake twice. But I mean having a deep understanding of why we made the mistake in the first place so that we can not only not make that mistake again, but we can eradicate the behaviours that led to mistakes like that. And by having that understanding, you can perhaps cut out multiple mistakes that may have otherwise happened, not just the one that you know not to do again because you've suffered it. Having an understanding of why can actually be far-reaching in terms of the benefits that you see over an extended period of time. Now, I have spent some time recently with a, a company, and about two weeks ago, I had the initial consultations with the wider team and then a series of individual meetings with some senior leaders where I sat down and I had about an hour with each one of those as an initial consultation to get an understanding of why their company is suffering. And this is a company that has had results that just did not live up to expectations, didn't match the expectations or the forecasts that they had predicted would be their results. Everybody knows their results have been disappointing. And from an internal perspective, this company was suffering all the way through the entire structure because management were clearly devastated that results hadn't matched expectations. 
But because these results were displayed for all to see, the entire company was well aware that they had failed or they had been failing. And they'd found it very difficult to rally round and turn that around to try and rebuild the process and to make it better. They were suffering as a result of the big loss and the downward spiral in terms of emotional state and the mood in the camp, the feeling within the organization was now starting to prevent them from having the success that they need, from improving their output because their emotional state was so low. This was part of what I went to talk about. And having spent some time with a number of individuals, it was all about asking that question, why? Why has this happened? Why have people been feeling this way? Why was this decision made? And I effectively went through, or I am still going through, the exact same process that I went through at McLaren at the end of 2007. Can we go back and piece together the timeline of events that led to an eventual poor set of results? Can we overlay that timeline with some personal data, with calendars and email sets and communications that might be available that all fed into people making a decision, conversations that led to an eventual decision? The same process I've described to you, I am now applying to this company. And already we've found some really interesting solutions, some really interesting ideas that will lead to interesting solutions. We're still at the very early stages of this, but it is fascinating how effective going through a process like this can be. And I'm now starting to encourage many of the people within this organization at many levels, from management all the way down, to start journaling, to start writing down their feelings. This is something that people tend to keep inside, particularly from a male perspective. There's a lot of research to say males, men are even more or struggle even more to either vocalize or verbalize or to write down even their emotional feelings. We tend to keep them inside more so than women do. But in the workspace, it's almost unheard of for a company to encourage people, their staff, to write down or express their feelings on a regular basis but it could be really, really valuable. If the company is able to give a means and a conduit for people to do this, whether it's kept private or shared with somebody that they trust, if they can get people and encourage people to write some of these feelings down every single day in a very similar way that that I do on on a personal level at home, in my own journal, if we can do those things, We may never have to show them to anybody if we don't want to, but there may well be an occasion when we just want to try and understand why something worked out a certain way. Particularly, as I said way earlier on in the the podcast, when we have a failure, that's when we really start to probe or we should be really probing into why the failure happened. When we have success, it's actually just as important to know why we had the success. But typically people don't do that because if we have success, we pat each other on the back and we move on. We celebrate. We don't give ourselves the freedom of time to go back and analyze why it went so well, because we're just riding a wave of positive emotion and nobody's got time or wants to go back and spend some time digging away because what does it matter? It worked. We won. We got the success. 
But actually, this process is just as valuable whether you failed or succeeded, because having an understanding of why you succeeded can be just as important as having an understanding of why you failed, because it can help to inform better decisions, more better decisions, the further you go down the line. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how this works. I've never actually gone through this process other than at McLaren with another organization. But the company is buying into it as an experiment. They want to try it. They're happy to try it. And so we're going to give it a go. And whilst I can't talk about the specifics of who the company are and how this goes from a a specific detail point of view, I will give you an overview of how this goes over the coming months because it's really interesting as a a little experiment. It's almost a social experiment as much as it is a data experiment. But I have seen how impactful this can be. I've seen how it can turn a championship from rock bottom. The feeling of disappointment in 2007 was rock bottom. I haven't felt that low, I don't think ever, in my Formula One career. And we shouldn't really feel that low. We got so close to winning a world title. That's something to be celebrated in itself. But in that moment, when you're that close, after months and months of hard slog and sacrifice to come away with nothing, we were so low. But perhaps that low feeling, that disappointment, that crushing blow was also what helped to spur me and many of my colleagues on to go to the levels that we ended up going to to try and find the solutions moving forward. And that's why 2008 was such a powerful, positive and special moment when we got to that final corner of the final lap in the final race of the season, when the world thinks we won that Grand Prix at that moment, when Lewis Hamilton overtook Timo Glock We didn't win that world championship in that moment. We won that world championship in every single moment throughout the 2008 season, but also long before that. We won it through the process of self-analysis we went through after 2007, but we also won it through 2007. The things we got wrong in 2007 are directly linked to the things that we got right in 2008. Because we asked why. We asked why over and over again. And we now created a data set that became so valuable. Well, we discovered a data set back in 2007. We're now creating data sets. And that's something that you can do every single day. And believe me, if it can win a world championship, or at least help to win one, imagine what it might be able to help you to achieve in your own lives. I cannot recommend it highly enough and I would love to know if you do this. And even if you don't ever end up going back and using this as a a data set in inverted commas, if you don't use it to analyse things, there are so many benefits to just simply writing your feelings down every single day anyway. There's a lot of data and science around how that can really help you getting your emotions out and not bottling them up massively valuable process and even if you don't feel you can share them with somebody else in your life writing them down putting them in your journal is a great way to free them from your mind so that you're not having them rattling around your mind just bottled up in there write them down get them out revisit them if you want to but even if you do nothing other than write down some of your feelings every single evening or the next morning about what happened the day before Believe me, 
it can be a massively powerful process to go through. I'd love to know how you get on, guys. So please give it a try. What have you got to lose? Now, I want to say a massive thank you to Car Gods. I said I'd talk about them again, and I've left it right to the end this week. But Car Gods, as I've said in previous episodes, and I said right at the beginning of this, are so closely linked to everything that I believe is right when it comes to business and being, and brands and the way they conduct themselves, the way they present themselves. They have attention to detail running through every single thing that they do and their products, quite honestly, are amazing. I have told you this many times and it is the truth, but I have used many car detailing, car cleaning products, car protection products, and in almost every case, Car God's products have shone for me, and pun fully intended, Car God's products have really worked. They have worked on my own car, they've worked on many of the cars coming through the Wheeler Dealers Workshop, and I cannot recommend them highly enough. And so, when I was looking for somebody to partner with the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast to help me grow it, to help me to eventually achieve some of the things I want to achieve through this platform, which will include you. I went straight to Car Gods. I went to Car Gods because of all those things I've just said, but their attention to detail, which as you, as many of you know, is something that's ingrained in me from my time at McLaren, their attention to detail is second to none. So please go and check out cargods.com. There are some great things to gift people over the holiday season coming up, including that advent calendar that I keep banging on about, but I'm banging on about it because it's very cool. Uh, but have a look at it. Go check some stuff out. And if you want to get something, just say a little hello. Tell them where you found them. Tell them where you first heard about cargods.com right here at the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Uh, thank you so much to every single one of you guys for listening and spending an hour with me. I know your time is precious. I know that. We all have limited amounts of time. And so to have spent an hour of it with me, I hope that you feel you've got something from it. And if you have, I would hugely appreciate if you were willing and able to write me a very quick review. Give me a five-star rating if you've enjoyed it in the Apple Podcast Store. That's hugely powerful and important to how this podcast is able to grow. Tell your friends. Tell somebody about this podcast. Share it on your WhatsApp groups amongst your mates, amongst your family. Tell your colleagues at work about it. I know many people who listen to this podcast share this with their colleagues. They use it as part of some teachings and learnings within the work environment. That makes me enormously proud. And I'm so grateful when people let me know this kind of stuff. So please keep those messages coming. But let's try and tell the world together what we're trying to achieve here, because ultimately, I hope the goal of all of this, and I know that must be the goal of why you guys listen in and tune every week, tune in every week. The goal must be to try and improve our lives and get closer to whatever the success that we're chasing in life looks like for any single one of us. If there's anything that I've learned in the world of Formula One with my privileged existence that I had over a 10 year period at McLaren and many years beyond that in the broadcasting side of the sport too. If there's anything that I have learned that I can share with you that improves your life in even the smallest way, well then this podcast has been an enormous success. And if it does that, please tell me and tell your friends. And in the meantime, whatever it is you're up to over the course of the next week, before we come back 
and I think get the closing episode of season five. Try and remember this as you go through your days. Do the right things. Do the things right. Right.